Romans 7, Paul begins, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. And Father, we just humbly bow our hearts and pause to ask that you would speak to us from your word, that by your spirit you would prepare each of us accordingly and that you would help us to hear specifically from this portion of scripture the intent and the purpose and the reason for which you wrote it and that you would speak to us in just a personal and a powerful and direct way this morning. Bless your word by your spirit's ministry we ask and we pray in Jesus' name and everyone said... Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, what would you say is the way to most effectively achieve or experience spiritual victory over our struggles with sin? I suppose people would propose a lot of different ideas for that, uh, some of which comes to mind at times is that what we need to do is establish strict regulations and then uh, endeavor to keep them through our personal efforts, to make resolves, to count to five before we answer in a situation, to make sure we don't lose our temper or say something sinful. Well, that answer really is going to be given to us in our text this morning, as well as as we continue to go through Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8 of how exactly the Bible says we do experience victory over our universal struggle with sin in our lives. Romans chapter 7 reveals to us very clearly that even after salvation, even after we have been born again and accepted Jesus Christ, everyone 
even as a Christian, still struggles with their sin nature. We learn and discover here very clearly as we're reading about that even the godly apostle Paul, who is writing these very things for us under the inspiration of the Spirit, speaking of his own experiences, we'll see it even more next week as he begins to describe his internal struggle and frustration with his own flesh, even the godly apostle Paul wrestled with his sin nature. And it's important for us to realize that even though it is true that Jesus has broke the power of sin in the sense so that it would not have domination and control over our lives whereby we are helpless slaves and we have no option, even though Jesus has broke the power so that sin does not have to rule of our lives, there is still within every one of us, even once we are saved, that internal present persuasion and temptation to indulge sin, as the Bible is going to show us, because of this indwelling sin nature that dwells within us and makes us wrestle. Therein comes the battle or the struggle within for what is going to reign in our lives, the sinful nature or the new spiritual nature that's been awakened by the Spirit of God through accepting Christ. And we find this inward battle where the old sin nature wants to rise up and reign, and yet there's this new spiritual nature within, even as a Christian, that realizes it should be reigning within our lives as well now. And then there's this battle. Galatians 5 describes it this way. It says, For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And the spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature, they are in, listen, conflict with each other. Now, it brings me to this point this morning as we begin this new section. As a Christian this morning, if you are experiencing an internal battle, a conflict within yourself every day, more every hour, between trying to decide between doing right and doing wrong, guess what? You're normal. That means you're normal. And more than that, you're in good company. You're in company with the Apostle Paul who says, the things I don't want to do, that's what I keep doing. And the things that I realize I should be doing, those are the things that I'm not doing. And that internal conflict and battle is a natural part of the Christian experience. Remember in chapter 6, what Paul was teaching to us, which sets the basis for chapter 7, is that Jesus, through his work upon the cross and resurrection, has broken the dominating power, the mastery and rulership over sin in our lives that has controlled us as a result of being born of Adam, who was passing on to us a sin nature. And how awesome to know that we do as Christians, once we come to Christ, have freedom and power now to overcome temptation, that we can choose to yield to the Spirit and that we can walk in victory when sin solicits us to participate and indulge it. And how wonderful to know that that's available, that there is power and victory available. But the question becomes this, how does that work itself out practically? How does that work itself out practically whereby I can experience and engage that victorious power that Christ offers to me as a Christian and overcome sin when temptation comes my way. Again, do we put ourselves under requirements of the law of God? Do we endeavor with our best efforts to keep rules and observe them? Paul's going to say here, trust me, I promise you that approach will never work. It will never work. 
keeping rules and regulations, trying to live according to law, that will never work. That will only lead to frustration in the flesh and further struggle. And Paul was pointing that out in this chapter here that rather we need to learn to yield to relationship, not rules, but relationship with Christ who by his present resurrected life, by his life he supplies us the needed grace and the power to overcome sin and its control over our lives and to bear fruit to God instead. Now in Romans 6.14, Paul made this statement to the believers as a result of our lives being joined together with him, which is the preface for where he goes into Romans 7 verse 1. Paul made this statement. He said, you are not under law, but under grace as a Christian now. You are not under law, but under grace. Now, he spends the rest of chapter 6, as we saw, discussing the practical implications of that. And now he comes back in chapter 7, verse 1, to that thought of that we are not under the law, but under grace to further explain to us what that means. Look with me again back in verse 1. Paul says, Or do you not know, brethren, Christians, that's brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion, control, authority over a man as long as he lives. So Paul says, surely you realize, logical thinking, that the law has dominion, power, or control over a person while they are still living. In other words, what he's implementing here is during the time that we are alive, it's true that we can be bound to laws, to contracts, to obligations of certain things that can have control or be in force over our lives that we have to submit to them. The point is, however, it requires death to terminate any and all obligations. That when death takes place, personal obligations and contracts become null and void. And it's only death, Paul's going to try and say, that releases a person from certain personal obligations in their life. Then verse 2 and 3, he illustrates that with marriage. Look what he says. For the woman, he says, who is a husband, is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she would marry another man, well, Paul says then she'd be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, then notice she is free from that law so that she's no adulteress, though she may marry another man. Now, let me begin by saying this. First of all, in context, and it's important to study the Bible in context, these are not intended to be direct instructions or specific instructions regarding marriage and remarriage here in Romans chapter 7. There are places in the Bible that do speak about those very things. 1 Corinthians 7, Matthew 19, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3. There are passages about marriage specific instruction in the Bible. These in context are not intended necessarily to be marital instructions. Here Paul's simply using the analogy of a marriage relationship and remarriage if one spouse dies as a way to help us understand his point. That as long as a married woman's husband, Paul says here, is still alive, then Paul says she is bound by law to that marital obligation in her life. Again, when I stand up with a couple and they go through their marital vows, basically, the, you know, the process, I, Sally, take you, Fred, for better, for worse, you know, in sickness and in health, till what? Till death do us 
part. That's the idea that Paul's getting here. Till death do us part. That marital contract and obligation keeps a couple under that law of marriage and it remains in force as long as Sally's husband Fred is still alive. Paul says here in verse 2, look at it, he says, but if Fred dies, if the husband dies, then what? She's released from the law of her husband. So if death happens, she's legitimately freed from the obligation to honor that marital commitment that was in force over her life. She's released from what once bound her. Paul says if she married someone while he was still alive, well, common sense, that would be adultery. But he says here, but if the husband has died, then she's been freed from that marital obligation. She's been freed from that law that was once in force over her life. The death of the husband, it liberates her to then, what, allow her the freedom to then be married to another person. It separates her from that old and prior relationship and it allows her the legitimate freedom to enter into a new relationship. Well, Paul then makes his application in verse 4 spiritually. He says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be, look what he says, married to another to him who was raised from the dead, very clear, he's talking about Jesus, that we should, as a result, bear fruit to God. So Paul pictures here how our old relationship that we once had to the law has ended and therefore it's freed us to enter into a new and we could say better relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he pictures it, notice, in verse 4, again, like a marriage. Now, certainly, let me say on the surface, it is true the analogy does change slightly here because take notice here, now what dies is not the law that we're married to at one point before we came to Christ and entered into a marriage with him, but now he says it's us who die. So the, yes, the analogy changes here. Don't be overly alarmed by that. But again, the reason is because we know the law hasn't died. The law of God is still alive. It's at work. It has a purpose. But the major concept, again, it's an analogy here. The major concept overall is still in existence. The point Paul's making is a prior marriage relationship has been severed or ended because of the death of one of the spouses. That's the point that he's getting to here. The idea is at one time we were originally, you could say, married, obligated to the law and to its requirements that were enforced over us. But through a death that has happened, as the result of that, we've been released from that binding obligation that was enforced over us, which now frees us to enter into a new and better relationship to be married to Jesus Christ. Again, remember Romans 6, it talked to us about how our spiritual union with Jesus as a Christian causes us to share in all his experiences. And what did Jesus do? Jesus came, he fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law, and then Jesus died sacrificially as he was punished for the righteous requirements that were violated of the law of God by all of us. And Jesus died sacrificially for everyone who's a lawbreaker. So Jesus dies in our place. Chapter 6 says in salvation, we were joined together with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. We shared in all those experiences. So Romans 6 told us having died with Christ, that's why Paul then says here in verse 4 that we have become dead to the law 
through the body of Christ. So through that death to the law that Jesus experienced, we've experienced a death in a sense as well as one of the spouses. Here's the important point, verse 4, which keeps the analogy going. Notice, so that, this is what Paul wants to say, so that you can now be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Here's the picture, the analogy or illustration Paul, I think, is trying to give here. The contrast of being married to Mr. Law as compared to then one day being married to Mr. Grace. You know, at one point we were married to Mr. Law. To be married to Mr. Law is extremely difficult because Mr. Law, he wakes up in the morning spot on at 5 a.m. every morning. He jumps out of bed. He doesn't have a hair out of place. His breath smells like mints. He never does anything wrong. As soon as he wakes up, he hits the floor, 200 push-ups, 600 sit-ups. He eats a perfectly balanced diet all day long. He never says anything wrong. He never does anything wrong. He's absolutely impeccable in his appearance and perfect in everything he does, how he treats people. He lives strictly. He follows every rigid rule that a good and wholesome person should. But the problem is, then he also begins to look at you and begins to indicate that you're not perfect like him. And as he takes out his little white glove and he wipes it along the counter and says, huh, I see there's a little dirt here. And you haven't cleaned the house perfectly. And my meal is not cooked perfectly. And he begins to make you feel guilty as the wife and, 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 and condemned because of the fact that you're not like him like Mr. Law, Mr. Perfect. In fact, he even goes so far as to even try and call the cops to get you prosecuted for every little thing that you do that he perceives as a violation. So being married to Mr. Law is absolutely miserable. It's miserable. You feel condemned and guilty. And then one day you roll over and thanks be to God, he's dead as a doornail. He's dead. He's dead. I'm free. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. I've been free. He's died. I'm, I'm freed from that relationship. And then you meet Mr. Grace. And Mr. Grace proposes to you, and you marry Mr. Grace. And Mr. Grace is loving. And he's patient and compassionate. And he's so helpful. In fact, he does whatever he can to help you clean in the house. And he assists you with the things that you need to do. And even when you fail and fall short, he doesn't condemn you. He picks you up and encourages you to keep going and reminds you that he still loves you so much. And, and life with Mr. Grace is wonderful. It's absolutely fantastic. And now she's cleaning the house not because she has to, but because she wants to. Because she's motivated by love to want to please him because of how wonderful the relationship is. And see, this is the idea, the Bible's saying, of being married to the law versus being married to Jesus, to Mr. Grace. And this is the analogy God's taking into our minds here. Take note of a few things regarding what we learn here, spiritual life and spiritual experience that we can see from these verses. The first thing I would point out this, and two things I draw from this. First of all, that God's plan for our spiritual experience is not regulations, but relationship. God's plan for our spiritual experience is not regulations, 
but relationship. It's not about a lifestyle of keeping religious rituals and rules and observing requirements and feeling guilty like with Mr. Law because you're not measuring up and dotting all your I's and crossing all your T's and keeping a perfect rigid requirement of rules and, and obligations. Rather, how does the Bible portray it, verse 4, like a marriage relationship? And the whole purpose here of a marriage relationship intentionally portrays what? Loving intimacy with someone in a relationship. It pictures being married to Jesus. It says, so that we might be married to him who was raised from the dead. My question this morning to all of us is this. Is does your spiritual experience in your life, your spiritual life, does it reflect a marriage relationship, or does it reflect you with a list of do's and don'ts and laws and requirements that you believe that you have to subscribe to because every good spiritual person follows these rules and accomplishes these checklists and doesn't do this and does do that? Is it more like following a checklist with guilt and obligation, or is it more like a loving, intimate marriage relationship? that involves intimacy and companionship and fellowship. Because I tell you this, if it's not like a marriage, then we're missing something. And sometimes that's a reminder that maybe we need to adjust our spiritual lives. Jesus said to the church of Revelation in Revelation 2, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and you've labored for my name's sake and you've not become weary. You're workaholics, he says. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you fall and repent and do the first works. So again, Jesus pictures a group of believers and he says, well, work. Nobody can outdo you in work. You've got all the works. You do all the requirements. You're tough on sound doctrine. You're, you're, you, know, you put a great emphasis on practical holiness and obedience. And, and he says, you, you, no one, but he says, but there's something missing. That loving intimacy thing that we used to have where you actually wanted to spend time with me and it was because you were in love with me and, and we had a relationship. Remember that relationship that we had there? And Jesus says when such a thing begins to happen where we begin to leave the love element in our spiritual experience for Jesus, he says that's something, you hear what he said? That we're to repent of. This morning, if your Christian experience is more defined by laws and rules and regulations and your legalistic lifestyle than it is a loving relationship with Jesus, the Spirit of God would say, you really need to repent of that because it's taking things outside of the design of what God's intention. It's not meant to be regulations, but relationship. And secondarily, the other thing I see from this is God's secondary purpose or intention of that marital relationship you could say is that we be a productive Christian. That we be a productive Christian. Look what he says. We are married, verse 4, to Jesus. Why? That we should bear fruit to God. That we would become spiritually fruitful and productive in our relationship with Jesus. Now again, taking a natural illustration here, which is what Paul's following with in this analogy, the natural outcome, is it not true, of intimacy in a marriage relationship is typically out of that marriage relationship and intimacy, there is the bearing of fruit or bearing children. You become fruitful. What did the book of Genesis say? God said to Adam and Eve, be what? Fruitful and multiply. 
Now, in the same way, in a spiritual sense, our marriage to Jesus is intended, he says here, that we would bear fruit to God. In other words, the picture being, as we're experiencing loving intimacy with the Lord Jesus in a relationship, and we're having fellowship and communion and companionship with Jesus, and we're loving on the Lord, and, and He's loving us, and we're walking in a relational experience in that intimacy, that will lead us to becoming spiritually fruitful, to beginning to become a productive, fruitful Christian where we start to bear fruit he says, unto God. And that fruit to God can come in various types and various different ways. For example, Galatians 5, many of us know it, speaks of the fruit of the Spirit, right? Which is love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. In other words, fruit there pictures a godly nature that we become more Christ-like, that our nature represents the nature of God. Philippians and Hebrews and James speak of the fruit of righteousness. And there the idea is Christian fruit can be manifested by living in a way that's righteous, living in a way that's pleasing God. That's another way we can bear fruit to God by the fruit of righteousness, living in a God-pleasing way in a righteous manner. Colossians 1 and Philippians 1 speak of fruit from our spiritual labor or being fruitful in every good work. In other words, that as we're in intimacy with Jesus and we're experiencing his spirit's ministry within our lives, then ultimately we become fruitful in his spirit's ministry through our lives as we become fruitful in our labors for the Lord. In other words, you become a productive Christian. You become a reproductive Christian where you begin to bear fruit and it's not just what God's doing in you, but it becomes also what God's doing through you. And you begin to have an influence and an effect on other people, trying to win people to Christ and minister to others around you. Hebrews 13 speaks of the fruit of our lips, giving thanks and praise unto the Lord. And, and, and the idea there is, is the spiritual fruit of worship, the spiritual fruit of thanking the Lord and adoring Him in worship. James 5 speaks of the fruit of prayer. Imagine that. That's spiritual fruit, the Bible says. The fruit of prayer, where as a result of that relationship, the fruit of being in relationship with the Lord is we begin to have a prayer life. And prayer becomes a valuable asset to our relationship to the Lord. And Romans 15 and Philippians 4 then speak of even the fruit of giving and sharing financially to help someone in need or to enable ministry. The point is simply this. You're saying enough with the list. I've had enough. I got the point. We should bear fruit to God. We should bear. The Bible says if we're in right relationship with Jesus, look at it, it says that we should bear fruit to God. Question for yourself this morning. That's God's intention. Does that describe your spiritual experience? Could you legitimately say, I'm a fruitful Christian? Yeah, I can see fruit in my Christian life. Or are you a fruitful Christian? Jesus said in John 15, in his own words, abide in me, this is relational, stay connected to me, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. And Jesus said, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So again, Jesus speaks of the 
importance of us being fruitful. That that's God's intention, God's design. It brings pleasure to the Father. And Jesus said, how do we become fruitful? By staying connected to Him. Hey, do you want to be a more fruitful Christian, a more productive Christian? I'll tell you the first place to start. Just spend more time with Jesus. Just put a greater emphasis on relationship with Jesus, worshiping Jesus, walking with Jesus, being in relationship with Jesus, and the natural byproduct because you will be a more fruitful Christian. And that will become the natural outflow of that intimacy, of that marital love between you and the Lord. Verse 5, Paul goes on saying, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. So Paul reminds the believer how life before we were saved also bore fruit, yet he says that fruit, mm, he says it wasn't fruit to God, he says it was rather unhealthy, it was more like fruit unto death. He says when we were in the flesh, some translations render that when we were controlled by the sin nature. He's talking about our time before we were saved in the old life when we were living according to the rulership of our sin nature. And Paul says our sinful passions, look what he says in verse 5, were being aroused. They were being awakened by the law at work within us. And he says those righteous standards, when we read them in the law, and he's going to talk more about this in verses 8 to 11. He'll expand on this a little more. He says those righteous established standards that were there were actually provoking or arousing or awaking within us these sinful passions which we then satisfied in our selfish indulgence. And he says the result of sowing to the flesh then is it resulted in a different kind of fruit. It was fruit unto death. So it was yielding destructive consequences. Again, in the same way sowing to the spirit yields spiritual good consequences in our life and good byproducts. Whenever we yield to the flesh, it brings destructive consequences, circumstantially, morally, spiritually, even eternally. The fruit of serving sin, the Bible tells us, is always death. In other words, it always leads to loss. It destroys what is good. It diminishes any good and godly life-giving thing that the Father would intend for us. Verse 6, he says, but now, again, that was when we were in the past, but now, he says, we've been delivered, Paul says again from the law, having died to what we were once held by, like an old marriage, so that we should, notice again, serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So Paul indicates here how this powerful relationship change that's happened where we've died to that old marriage to Mr. Law and we've entered into a new relationship, much better with Mr. Grace, Mr. Jesus, who we're now married to, he says that should impact and influence how we serve. He's basically telling us here how at one time before we were married to Jesus, when we lived obligated under the, uh, the enforcement of the law, he says the only motivation we had to serve God in any way was really just trying to keep the, uh, the law and all of its you know, instructions and the heavy demands and the law and its impending punishments that we read about, really, it only motivates people to serve through fear, through guilt, through duty, through obligation. But what God is telling us here, he says, but yet Jesus came, he says, verse 6, to transform the way that we serve God. 
He came so that we would serve God in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. John said it this way in John chapter 1. He said, The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says this this deliverance from the law happened, he says, verse 6, so that we should now serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. The Bible's saying there should be a new quality to the way in which we serve God now. That we serve God in a different way. It's now based in loving relationship. It's not just observing regulations or duties. It's not, well, yeah, I'm a religious person, so I have these religious duties. And I have to follow my, you know, my responsibilities. He says, no, now we serve God because we desire to serve God. Not because we have to. Now we serve in this new sense of love, from a heart of love, not out of fear or guilt of what's going to happen if we don't do something. But he says, no, we serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. The difference is being led by spiritual desire rather than religious obligation and duty. We now serve out of spiritual desire. And this can be an ongoing challenge, if we're honest, in all of our lives, in our Christian experience. Let me illustrate it this way. Ask yourself these questions, because this is where we find ourselves struggling. Is it, I'm supposed to read my Bible? Is it, I'm supposed to read my Bible? Or is it, I want to read my Bible? I enjoy reading my Bible because God talks to me and he says things to me that I need to hear. Which one is it? Is it, yeah, I need to pray. I, I know I should pray. We're having one of those prayer meetings after church again today. I should pray. Or is it, I get to pray. I get to talk to God. And to tell God what's going on in my life. And he has the power to do something about it. And I don't have to figure out how to do it all on my own. I can just tell an almighty God who loves me what's going on. And he's going to act and he's going to answer and do things. Is it, yeah, I I mean, I I know I'm I'm supposed to witness to people. I I know I'm supposed to witness. Or is it, I want to talk to people about the Lord. I want to tell people about the Lord. Or is it... Yeah, I I have to serve in ministry. I mean, I signed up for that dumb Sunday school thing or that usher thing. Oh, it's my week. Stink. I I got this ministry. I got to serve in my ministry commitment. Or is it, I get the privilege to serve Jesus? I get the privilege to do things for God? And 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 he'd use me? It's amazing. He saved me, but he'd actually use me? See, or lastly, let me throw this out. Is it, yeah, boy, I mean, I, I have to do what the Bible says here, because if I don't, yeah, I know what happens if you don't do what the Bible says, then that whole guilt thing comes and the bad consequence. Yeah, I guess I have to do what this says here in this verse. Or, or, or instead, is it, you know, I, I want to obey the Lord, because I want to honor Him, and I love Him, and because I love Him, I want to obey Him. It's not that I have to. I want to obey him to show him my love. The idea, again, is we should serve due to a spiritual prompting in our hearts. In the new, He says it should revolutionize the way we serve God. We should serve in the spirit from a spiritual prompting in our lives. Now, having just spoken of how the law 
is something we were released from in our obligation in order to have a better relationship with Jesus. Paul anticipates now going forward here, he anticipates the next question that's going to come into people's mind in verse 7. In other words, it's going to be this. Well, wait a minute, then. Is something wrong with the law? Paul, you said it's good that we've been delivered from the law and released from that. Maybe that's the problem. Yeah, it's the law's problem. The law's not good, and, and perhaps the law is even what's making us sin. And, and Paul's going to say here, verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? And again, he says, God forbid, certainly not. Paul's saying here, the problem's not with the law. And he's going to show, especially in the verses ahead, as we go forward in the chapter, that the problem's not with the law. The problem's with humanity. But the problem is that we're sinners and we can't keep the law. There's nothing wrong with the law. He's going to say in later verses, as we read in verse 12, the law is holy, it's just, it's good. God gave the law. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law's not defective. It's, it's not causing problems. He's going to say later, we're carnal. That's the problem. We're sinful. The problem is with us. In fact, Paul says, verse 7, on the contrary, look how he goes on, I would not have known sin, Paul says, except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said to me, Paul, you shall not covet. So he goes back to this idea from chapter 3 where he again reiterates the truth to us that the law, one of its primary purposes is to help and assist us realize our sinfulness before God. It's God's law that indicates to us our true condition. That's why Paul says here, I would not have known sin except for the law having been given to us. We talked about this back in chapter 3, how God's law is like a mirror. It reveals your true condition. It shows you the reality about yourself. It's like a thermometer. It indicates you have a temperature. It's like an x-ray, the law. It reveals to you the true condition of what's going on inside. Now again, an x-ray can reveal your condition. It doesn't solve your condition. It just reveals it to you. And the Bible says this is what the law does. You can't be saved by the law. It doesn't solve your sinful problem. It just reveals your problem to you. It reveals to you, here's the holy, just, and good standard. And it reveals to you, you don't keep that. You break it. You violate it. The established standard, Paul says, in fact, it was through the law that I realized, he's saying of his own experience, that sin goes much deeper than just the actions, Paul says. But it actually confronts the internal desires. Look what he says in verse 7 there. He says, I would not have known that covetousness was a problem in me unless the law had said to me, you shall not covet. Here's what Paul's getting to. Being sinful goes way beyond the actions. And Paul discovered it even includes the inward desires. What was Paul before he came to Jesus? He was a strict Pharisee. Paul kept the law. Thou shalt not murder. I'm a Pharisee. I never murdered anybody. Thou shalt not commit adultery. I've never had adultery with anybody. I don't steal from anyone. I don't take God's name in vain. And Paul, in the outward actions, he was doing pretty good. But then he came to, thou shalt not covet. Ooh. Now that's not an action. What is that? That's an inward desire. And Paul said, oh, that one slew me. Then I realized I am a lawbreaker just like everybody else. And he discovered through the law, the issue of sin goes much deeper than just actions outwardly. Because anybody can form outwardly, conform outwardly to behaviors. You, know, you, you can you know, stand up outwardly but be sitting down in your heart. I mean, anybody can conform. But Paul says, I realized, oh, it, it's the inward desires too. 
Things like covetousness and, oh, I am guilty of that. I have done that. Covetousness is that inward desire for something that's not yours that belongs to another. And Paul discovered through the law the fact that he was guilty. Jesus said what? You shall hurt, you have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you've already looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you're guilty of the same thing. Again, the desire. Sin goes much deeper than actions. It's our desires inwardly as well that indicates that we're sinners also. So Paul says, verse 8, but sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin seemed like it was dead, Paul said. But I once was alive without it. But then when that commandment came and I saw what it said, Paul said, sin revived and I died. It put me to death. In other words, Paul's describing his own experience how the law that was an established standard of righteousness, as we said earlier in verse 5, it actually aroused or provoked within Paul kind of this rebellious nature. This is what he's talking about here. He's saying, once I read the standard, by golly, then I actually wanted to violate the thing. This is what he's saying here. Sin, look at the verse, verse 8. Sin taking opportunity by the commandment. When you look at the Greek there, it literally says sin used the command to set up a base of operations to launch an attack. Here's what Paul's indicating. Sin, using the command of an established standard, it set up a base of operations by that commandment and then it produced in me all manner of evil desire. What Paul's speaking of here is he said once the prohibition was then set and I saw the standard, truth be told, then I wanted to violate the thing. <laughs> he says at one point when I didn't have a standard apart from the law, the power of sin, it seemed like it was dead to me. But he says then once that commandment came and I realized the command and what it said, he said then all of a sudden sin was awakened within me and I found that sinful desire within me there wanted to do what was wrong and then I died under the sin's power. It's the old forbidden fruit syndrome is what Paul's describing here. Is it not true often we have no interest in that fruit tree until somebody says you can touch every tree of the garden but of this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. And then all of a sudden what happens? Adam goes I wonder why we're not supposed to touch that tree. And all of a sudden the forbidden fruit does what? It arouses what's already inside of every human being which is what? Rebellion, that we're rebellious at the core. The commandment just illustrates to us that we are indeed rebellious. It doesn't make us rebel. It brings to the surface our rebellious nature. Again, that wall, how many of you came in this morning and touched that wall? No one, right? But if we had sign that said wet paint, don't touch. Truth be told, would there not be most or a few? I wonder if it's still wet. Now, you know no interest in touching the wall. But once the prohibition is there, now for some crazy reason, the prohibition makes me interested in doing it. Right? That, that's how it happens. No trespassing. I wonder why they don't want us to trespass here. I wonder what's on the property. No fishing. I wonder why they don't want us to fish here. Right? This is the shore. No surfing. I wonder why they don't want us to surf here. See, a prohibition just, it provokes within us what we are. Rebels. And it awakens within us, God's law does, that reality of who we really are. You give us a standard and a rule, automatically what happens? We have an evil desire. We want to break the thing. We want to challenge it. 
That's just human nature because we are rebellious and sinful and God's law reveals that to humanity. Let's finish up these verses. Paul says, verse 10, and the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death, he says. The exact opposite. For sin taking occasion by that commandment, it deceived me, Paul said. And then the thing killed me, it slew me. In other words, Paul's speaking here of how, again, from his own experience of trying to keep the law, Paul, like many Pharisees, thought, hey, if I keep the law, that's how I get right with God. And that's where spiritual and eternal life comes from. And Paul says, I realized it was the exact opposite. I couldn't keep the law and sin deceived me in the whole process. And he said, the thing I thought would bring spiritual life, it actually became the very judge that indicted me and said, no, Paul, you deserve to die because you're a lawbreaker. And you didn't observe what the law says. And Paul realized, I couldn't live according to the law. Instead, I deserve death for breaking it. I'm guilty. And Paul realized what he thought would give life to follow rules and laws actually just really destroyed his spiritual life instead. And I think there's a lesson to be learned from that. Paul's discovery that trying to keep the law did not give spiritual life shows us an important thing as well, and that's this, is trying to keep the law... Trying to live legalistically to bring about spiritual life or enhance your spiritual life is counterproductive. In fact, putting laws and requirements on yourself to try and be more spiritual, it's not going to help. It's going to deceive you and actually it's going to kill your spiritual life. It's going to destroy your spiritual life as you can never keep those requirements and you relate to God by regulation rather than living in relationship with Jesus as we're intended to. Paul says, verse 12, therefore the law is holy. It's the commandment, he says, it's holy and just and good. Again, Paul's saying there's absolutely nothing wrong with the law. I realize that. The law of God is good. It comes from a God who is holy and good and just. There's nothing wrong with it. The problem, Paul's going to say as we go into the next chapter, is with us as sinners because we're unable to keep the law. We're unable to obey it. That's where the struggle comes. Again, Psalm 19 says what? It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Well, how does that happen? Well, Paul says in verse 13, the way that happens is that good thing, which is the law, helps sin to appear sin, and therefore sin through the commandment becomes exceedingly sinful. He says, here's how the law is good and what it does a good job of. It does a good job of showing us that we're lawbreakers and that we are exceedingly sinful people. And if we didn't have the established standard to show us that, a lot of times we think we're a lot better than what we really are. But he says the law does a good job of saying, no, look, you're a lawbreaker. And then the law says you need a savior, which makes us reach out to Jesus for salvation and forgiveness. Again, can I reinforce the Christian life is not intended to be lived by rules and regulations. It's intended to be lived by relationship. And if you try and overcome sin by establishing rules and trying to keep them in your best efforts, you're going to be frustrated to no end. You must focus on relationship with Jesus and the power and the life that he supplies as you stay in fellowship with him to help you overcome sin. Let me encourage you this morning in conclusion, if you are or if your tendency is to do such, stop trying to serve God via rules and your Christian legalistic regulations and instead focus on relationship 
with Jesus. Put your emphasis on building your relationship with Jesus.